I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program in segments two and three is returning guest to the program, Mr. Carl Denninger. I'll get his forecast for the U.S. economy, for stocks, and for real estate. You're going to want to stay tuned for that. And also, it is December, so I do have a brand new special report to offer you this month. The topic of this month's report is IRA, 401k, and other retirement plan strategies for 2023. To get your copy of this free report, all you need to do is visit the website requestyourreport.com. Let me know where to mail you the report, and I will be very glad to do that. Uh, The report will outline also some Thanksgiving week changes to 401k plan regulations that the Biden administration made. So again, uh, to get that report titled IRA 401k and other retirement plan strategies for 2023, visit the website requestyourreport.com. Let me know where to mail you that report. And again, I'll be very glad to do that. Well, this past week, I was reading an article that was written by Egon von Greyerts, and uh, Mr. von Greyerts is the founder of Matterhorn Capital. And I uh, would uh, really title this segment in talking about Mr. von Greyerts' article, Scary Numbers. Von Greyerts, in his article, said that there are a number of those out there that say, the U.S. can never default, and, and what that means is really default on its debt. Now, Von Greyer said, and I would agree that that is absolute nonsense, because if a country prints worthless debt that nobody will buy, and they do so in a currency that no one wants to hold, the country has definitely defaulted whatever spin they try to put on it. Now, he says this in his article, in the next few years, not just U.S., but all sovereign debt, sovereign debt will only have one buyer, and that buyer will be the country that issues the debt. And every time a sovereign state buys its own debt, it has to issue more worthless debt that nobody will touch with the proverbial 10-foot pole. Von Greyer said that when you print more currency to pay for previous sins, it won't work. It's never worked, and it never will. And Von Greyerd says this is how money dies, just like it has throughout history. Now, the current monetary era started when the Federal Reserve was founded in 1913, and of course, the current monetary system really got to its current state in 1971 when then-President Richard Nixon eliminated the link between the U.S. dollar and gold. After World War II, the U.S. dollar was backed by gold and redeemable for gold at a rate of $35 an ounce. That, that, That redemption privilege was temporarily suspended by Mr. Nixon back in 1971. Now, since 1971, by Von Greyerts' calculations, global currencies are down 97 to 99 percent. Now, the final 1 to 3 percent decline, of course, is a 100 percent fall from today. And Von Greyerts very alarmingly states 
that the final collapse is always the quickest. So he thinks this could be two to five years away. Now, I'll talk more about that here in just a moment. Now, since 1971, when you just look at the numbers, and as I go through this, I want you to think about the numbers logically. Since 1971, U.S. debt has gone up 53-fold. So in the last 51 years, U.S. debt is up 53-fold. So there is $53 in debt today for every $1 of debt that existed in 1971. Now, the U.S. economic output over that time frame is up 22-fold. So here we have debt growing at much more than twice the rate of economic output. Now, let me put that in terms of your household for a moment. If your household debt went up 53-fold, but your income only went up 22-fold, you would reach a point at some future time that that became unsustainable. Now, if you go back and take a look at U.S. government debt, it has literally doubled every eight years. So Trump inherited a $20 trillion debt from Obama in 2017. Now the debt stands at pushing $32 trillion. And Von Greyerd says by 2025 or 2026, it could be $50 trillion at our current pace. Now, drilling down on these numbers, since 1981... When Reagan became president, debt is up 35-fold. Tax revenue is up only about 8-fold. So if you stop and think about it, if you're a person who thinks critically, if you're a person who thinks logically, you have to ask, how can debt ever be repaid when it's going up four and a half times faster than tax revenue or income? Now, this whole problem is being exacerbated this year as interest rates now are going back up. Interest payments on the U.S. debt were put right around 0%, very, very low, and now they're rising, and if they get to 5% by 2025, the cost to service the debt will be $2 trillion, which is about 30% of the budget, but it's about 45% of tax revenues. That, of course, is also unsustainable. And if you look at the growth in monetary, the monetary base, if you look at the growth of the currency supply, this statistic that Von Greyerts points out is absolutely eye-popping. Between August of 1971 and August of 2019, over that 48-year time frame, the money supply grew at 6.1% per year. However, if you start in August of 2019 and look at the growth of the money supply over the next three years to August of 2022, you see a 74% annual increase in the monetary supply. That is highly inflationary, and that certainly explains part of why we have inflation today. 
Now, when you take a look at really what today's currency is, today's currency has no intrinsic value. In fact, Von Greyerts likens what central banks are doing to a Ponzi scheme. He said they print and borrow money, and then they're paid for the pleasure of borrowing this money. He said any private swindler launching a scheme like Ponzi or Madoff would spend the rest of his life in prison, but the bankers are praised for saving the system. Now, I have brought this up in the past, but here is a, another staggering statistic. Central banks around the world own about $2 trillion in gold. Global debt is about $300 trillion. Derivative exposure is now more than $2 quadrillion. Now, I don't have really time to talk about what derivatives are, but essentially they are side bets or insurance policies between banks to protect against some event in their portfolio. And unlike most insurance policies issued by most commercial insurance companies, which are completely regulated, there is no regulation in this market. So Von Greyerts points out that this $2 quadrillion, which is now quasi-debt, will one day become real debt. So we have a $2 quadrillion dollar debt resting on $2 trillion of what was once considered to be real money. This is completely unsustainable. That's why I would suggest that you consider using the revenue sourcing planning strategy when planning for your retirement. And when you request the December special report, I'll be glad to send you a copy of the revenue sourcing book as well. All you need to do if you'd like to get the report and the book is visit requestyourreport.com. Just let me know where to mail the report and the book. I'll be glad to do that. Again, requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with Mr. Carl Denninger. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is a prolific commentator. Uh, You can read his work at market-ticker.org. I do frequently. I would encourage you to do the same. And uh, Carl, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me on, Dennis. So, Carl, we were chatting a bit before we started uh, recording uh, this this conversation, and uh, we, we were chatting a bit about the, the, the health of the U.S. economy, and I use the term prosperity illusion to describe uh, what's happened over the past few decades, and that was in response to a comment you made. Uh, give us your assessment of the health of the U.S. economy. Where are we now, and uh, to, to what would you attribute this uh, uh seemed success over the past couple decades? Well, I think it's a little more more complicated and yet at the same time a little more simple. Uh, we can take this in a, in a personal fashion. Uh, 
consider that, uh, let's say that you were to buy a brand new house. It's just been built. So everything in it is new, the refrigerator, the air conditioner, the roof, um, you know, the driveway, the doors, everything. And so you do that, you move in and uh, you, you pay the money and then you enjoy life for the next 20 years and you never put anything aside. So normally what you would do in any kind of reasonable commercial enterprise is you'd have this thing called a sinking fund. So if your air conditioner, for example, is expected to last 10 years, uh, you would put one-tenth of the cost of an air conditioner into this fund every year because on average, about every 10 years, it's going to blow up and you're going to have to buy another one. Uh, you'd do the same thing with your roof. Maybe your roof lasts 20 years. So you every year you put in one-twentieth of the cost of a roof. Same thing for your refrigerator and the, you know your washer and dryer, your major appliances and things like this. Well, that's money that has to come out of your operating cash flow, whatever you run your house on. Right? So that is not money that you can go spend on a trip to Disneyland <laughs> or an RV or a boat or, or whatever have you, or whatever kind of fun you're, you, know, you, you happen to enjoy. Well, instead, we as a nation have done, we haven't done any of that. We haven't put any of that aside. And so we've cranked up this free money machine, but we've put nothing back for this sort of thing. And every time that there is some kind of an expense like this that has to be budgeted for and looked at, we found ways to try to cheapen it. So we've taken the skilled labor with short supply lines that are within the United States and we sent them to China. We sent them to Mexico. We sent them to India. Uh, and, and therefore, we've put an ocean in the middle and an uncertain political environment that's not under our control. Okay, the Chinese government is its own politics. It's, it, it's its own political and social system. Uh, may or may not deliver things that we want delivered when we want them delivered. We should have learned this in the 1970s with the Arab oil embargo, but apparently we didn't learn it very well. Now, this is all coming back to roost uh, because those, you know, the roof is old. It's leaking. The air conditioner isn't working very well. It comes on most of the time. It's making some really weird noises out there in the backyard. And uh, the doors, the locks don't work anymore. And uh, by the way, there's more burglars around than used to be 20 years ago because everybody else has been doing the same thing. So some number of our fellow citizens have decided that crime is a, uh, a better way to make a living than by going out and getting a job. And oh, by the way, we sent a lot of their jobs over to China and India and Mexico anyway. So in some cases, it's not that they don't want a job. It's that they can't find one that pays enough to actually put the roof over the head. And we wonder why, uh, you know, gee, this, this looks great. Uh, well, and Jerome Powell comes along and says, oh, by the way, uh, you know, our, our inflation situation is not so wonderful. And, and people are getting very imbued with the idea that this isn't going to get fixed in the space of six months or a year anymore. We have the... What the Fed really worries about is inflation expectations. It's not so much the inflation today, it's what you believe it'll be tomorrow, because that drives your behavior. And those expectations continue to go up, uh, even though, if you look at the data, uh, there are all sorts of people, you know, Joe Biden is saying that uh, inflation has peaked. Uh, so are, you know, so by the way, is Janet Yellen, okay, who used to be in charge of the Fed. Uh, but the data says that the American public doesn't believe it. And so we've got the squeeze of incoming capital on one side and the squeeze of increasing expense on the other. Uh, 
these are things that we enjoyed by intentionally deferring and being stupid about for the last 20 years, and now they're coming home to roost. And, and Carl, don't, couldn't we even make the argument that not only have we, we, we outsourced um, and, and, and really gotten rid of a lot of these uh, essential manufacturing uh, uh, processes, but we've also borrowed against future production. I, I mean, we're spending money we don't have. Uh, we, we, we actually, you know, ran the credit card up to the limit and, and, and now we've gone, we funded this through, through quantitative easing. So, I mean, haven't we just exacerbated this problem by the Fed's monetary policy? Oh, absolutely. But it's, but remember, it's not the Fed's monetary policy. It's Congress's monetary policy. The, the Fed, if you look at the data from the St. Louis Federal Reserve, and I, I brought this up a hundred times and people, when they first look at it, they go, what? And it's absolutely true. You look at the Fed funds rate and you look at the at the T-bill, the short-term T-bill, either four-week or 13-week, take your pick, and graph the two uh, and, and on, a, on a continuous basis, and you will see that the market moves first every time. In virtually every single case, the market moves first. So the idea that the Fed controls these policy rates is absolute nonsense. What controls a policy rate is the response in the economy from what Congress does. Congress is the one that passes the bills to spend money that we don't have. The Fed doesn't spend money we don't have. They, the Fed can't spend anything. But but now, Carl, we have the, the so, so we've got one Congress uh, spending money that we don't have to the tune of a you know a, a deficit that's uh, you know approaching a couple trillion uh, has been as high as three trillion. Uh, that that's continuing. Uh, the Fed is essentially funding that. And now interest rates are going up. So when you take a look at what it's costing the U.S. government to service its debt, I mean, only in Washington would you have long-term interest rates at, at, at low rates and finance all the debt over a really short time frame. I think I read a stat that it's taking now about 29% of tax revenues just to service, uh, service debt, just to pay the interest. Oh yeah, but that's but that's not the worst of it, all right. I mean, if if you take a look at where where the money actually goes, um, CMS, Medicare and Medicaid, crossed a two trillion dollar threshold uh, this last fiscal year, ending in September. Uh, that report just recently came out for the uh, you know for the last month for September, which is you know which is the end of the government's fiscal year. Um, that was a threshold that I expected was going to happen about two years from now. And in the problem with that threshold uh, being crossed and the percentage of the total budget that it represents is that it's an exponential cycle, which I identified back in the, the, the 1990s and said this is going to blow up the federal budget and destroy the country if we don't stop it. And it's, in, and it's the medical system. It's gone from 4% of GDP to 20%. But rather than deal with this, because it's that's hard. You've got to tell, you know, this is good. Now it's one person in five. When you think about it, one dollar in five in the economy means that about one person in five is, is making their living of other people. Um, and healthcare at its best is a symbiotic relationship. And its worst is parasitic because it produces nothing. It allows other people to produce that, that couldn't without it, which, you know, which is the symbiotic side of it, right? Uh, but we've gone from four that four percent overhead to twenty percent overhead, uh, and it's continuing to grow. Uh, and at the same time, you have the government incentivizing through their policies and the way they handle taxation, uh, taking things that we ought to be doing and not doing them. You know, so 
saying, you know, about putting money aside for a roof. Well, in many states, the states have tax systems that tax inventory. Okay, so we just had a an incident in North Carolina where the power has has been out for a couple of days. They say it's going to be a couple more. It's a substation that apparently was shot at. Uh, now you would think, okay, somebody shot a transformer. Uh, go get the spare one out of the barn, bring it over here, put it in. Uh, you know, I mean, these things get hit by lightning. This kind of stuff happens through acts of God that have nothing to do with somebody being a criminal. Uh, there's, there's a problem. They don't have another one. You, you would think, how could you not have one of these within the county? All right? I mean, you know, come on, how long does it take to drive across to any county in America, right, with a truck? A couple hours. So, you know, the, the storm happens, the bad thing happens, whatever. The storm is gone. Uh, the guys show up with a couple of trucks and then four hours later, back on because they just replaced the blown up thing, whatever it is. No, not this time. Uh, four days is, you know, the estimate from when it occurred. Uh, because they presumably have to go get this thing from somewhere else. Well, what happens when there isn't a somewhere else? What if, what if you got to order this thing and it's, it comes from China and it takes 18 months to make it? So, Kyle, we've got a couple minutes left in this segment. I mean, I mean when, you, when, when you look at all these factors, the fact that, uh, you know, manufacturing's overseas, we've got huge deficit spending, we're financing it through essentially currency creation, and behind the scenes, debt levels are continuing to rise in the private sector and the public sector. Um, are, aren't we headed for a deflationary collapse that will have to be the mother of all deflationary collapses? Yeah, it's, well, that's what I've been expecting for a while. I thought we'd get something like that after twenty, you know, after the 28 uh, uh, mess with the housing market. And it was, of course, put off by more money printing. <laughs> uh, but the the problem with doing this is that it's that's kind of like you know your roof's leaking so you go up there with a blue tarp and you know put a couple of tires on it so it doesn't blow off and the next time it rains and uh you know oh it's all good well no it's not all good it, all we've done is make it worse you look at what has occurred in the housing market over the last couple of years so prices in many areas have doubled and now mortgage rates have gone from you know sub three percent to to somewhere around six and a half or seven, which by the way is still historically not very bad, right? I mean that's that's historically right. about average, right? I mean, that's that's an average rate over the last you know hundred years, right? If you get six percent mortgage, that's really not all that bad for thirty year money, but it's still lower than the rate of inflation, and you should never be able to borrow money for less than the inflation rate ever. So what does this do to the price of houses over time? What does it do to the price of stocks and assets? There's a, yeah, there's a, there's a deflationary collapse coming because the, the cost of capital is going to revert to being positive in real terms. It has to. Agreed, yeah. Well, my guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. His uh, website is market-ticker.org. You can read his writing there. I would encourage you to do that. I will continue my conversation with Carl when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. 
Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, I uh, love reading Carl's work. I love his perspective. Uh, you can read it at market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to do that. Uh, so, Carl, uh, as we ran out of time in the last segment, we were talking about the fact that this has to, at some point, evolve into a deflationary collapse. And uh, as we were talking, I was reminded of the words of Thomas Jefferson, who said that uh, if the American people ever allow private bankers to control the issue of their currency, first through inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of the very continent their fathers conquered, or some variation of that. Isn't that exactly what we're seeing? Yeah, except I think that I, I, one of the things that I, I have a problem with that quote is that the, the assumption is, is that all of this is being driven by the private sector. And perhaps, uh, you know, back before the 16th Amendment and back before federalization of senators, when the Senate was the representatives of the state legislatures, which is the original design of the Constitution of the United States. So we had the, and then we had the state's house in the form of the Senate, uh, in that each state was free to choose how to select and remove during terms uh, their particular senators. So a, a state legislature could recall their senators if they wanted to. Uh, this, this, of course, went away with the 17th Amendment. Uh, and we went to the direct election process that we have today. Prior to that, this was this was almost certainly uh, something that was was true and was not going to change. And you had you had boom and bust cycles that uh, it could be very very easily argued in the 1800s were deliberately engineered by the various banking cartels. And they were they were engineered uh, to produce booms and busts, and the intent was to steal all the property. <laughs> it gets you to borrow money against something that uh, that collapses in value, and you, know, you lose it, right? It, it, they they seize it because you can't make the payments. Um, now, though, it's the federal government that's doing most of this innovation. Right? We we as consumers and as individuals get caught up in the middle of this, and uh, so you see the kind of craziness that goes on where. We've, we're putting immense amounts of money on credit cards right now to try to stay up with a, a, a highly inflationary environment. But the reason the inflation is happening is because the federal government uh, takes in $3 trillion and spends five. Okay, so, I mean, uh, that's not happening because you and I are going out and, and putting our groceries on our, on our uh, Visa card. So, Carl, you know, when when you look at the fact that there's these that there's massive deficit spending at the federal level, and uh, certainly I, I agree with you, that's 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 the root cause. So, if that's the root cause, you have to see a balanced federal budget to begin to get this problem under control. I don't see that happening, uh, at least on a proactive basis. Doesn't that mean that you know eventually markets take over, and this 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 has to happen on a reactive basis, which is probably going to be pretty ugly. Yeah. And, and what likely comes out of this is a stagflationary environment that's extremely nasty. So, um, and, and, and by the way, the, the worst possible uh, scenario from an economic perspective, I mean, people, people say deflation is terrible. Deflation is not terrible if you hold cash. Uh, if, if you don't own a house and you would like a house and you have cash, deflation is your best friend in, that has ever happened. 
Okay. Same thing if you're trying to start a business and you have capital and, and you know you don't own any equipment or property, plant, whatever have you. You you love deflation because it makes everything cheaper. Uh, that's that's fantastic. On the other hand, if you're in debt, deflation is is hideously destructive. But the worst possible environment is a stagflationary environment where you can't you you have inflation that's there that's going on in in prices. Um, not really in assets, but in operating expenses. And of course, interest is an operating expense, right? Um, but at the same time, you're not getting any productivity improvement. You're not getting a better output. So, Carl, in your view, uh, you know, drill down a bit on and what you think this this stagflationary environment ultimately looks like. And how is it going to affect someone, in your view, that has money in an IRA or a 401k that's thinking, you know, they want to retire like their parents did? Well, I don't know that anybody's going to be retiring like their parents did. Um, I mean, unless you're, you know, if you're in the top tenth of one percent of American households or even the top one percent, perhaps, uh, then, you know, maybe none of this stuff. I mean, yeah, it's going to matter. But, uh, you know, it's the difference between having a Learjet for class, right? Um you're still going to do most of the things you want to do for the average Joe. It's an entirely different game because the, the premise that you would take care of that, that we would, we would essentially promote the younger generation. Things got difficult. Okay. And if you think about it, that's a perfectly logical perspective. Why? Because it is the young person who ultimately goes off to work and therefore pays taxes. Right. And they pay the taxes that you wish to consume when you're older. We have turned that on its ear. We have taught two generations at least worth of individuals now that there is no corporate loyalty. There is nothing to be earned other than a paycheck. At, at 5 o'clock when you, when you punch the clock and go home, you owe them nothing. And the reason you owe them nothing is because they owe you nothing. And they treat you that way. So we have sacrificed the young as you know, last years, crying out loud, look at the education, and everything else that's gone on with COVID and all of this, for the sake of the old, which is exactly upside down. Well, what do you think the younger people are are doing and are going to do in response to that? We do. We're not a, a nation of slaves. You can't force people to go out and put their best effort in. So. Carl, when, when do you see this uh, this deflationary collapse emerging? I know time frames are, are a very difficult thing to predict, but it just seems to me when you take a look at uh, you know the number of Americans that are are, are, are putting living expenses on credit cards, I think uh, the average household or, or households collectively in the U.S. in the last year have increased their debt by 1.4 trillion. It seems like we're on a trajectory that just you know you can't continue at this pace much longer. Well, I think it's starting now. I mean, I, you know, there's <laughs> it's it's kind of funny when you look at some of the internal indicators and things. The the leading economic indicators have have been deteriorating now for several months. Um, the the job market is is interesting because the, there's a huge divergence between the establishment and the household surveys that have shown up. Uh, and there are people that are saying that that implies uh, government malfeasance and you know, intentional distortion of the numbers. I, I don't buy it that way. What I think it's showing is that we have an awful lot of people that are taking second and third jobs. And on the establishment survey, they count as two or three people because they call a company and say, how many people are working for you? 
uh, on the household survey counts as one because they call you up and say, do you have a job? <laughs> okay. So, so you're seeing this divergence show up in the data. Uh, but that says that people are getting squeezed. And, and as that squeeze accelerates, uh, I, I think when we get into the new year, uh, this, this coming year, you're going to start to see this really come, come to the fore. Uh, but I don't see this clearing. And, and the people that have the happy face on and say, oh, you know, this is going to be short and shallow or whatever. Look, I, the 1970s and early 1980s were not short and shallow. And, and I think the best case scenario we have in front of us looks, like some, looks an awful lot like that. Well, and, you know, it's best case because when you look at debt levels in the private sector and debt levels, uh, you know, in the, at the federal level and, and, and even state municipal levels, there's no comparison. Debt levels are far higher today than they were during that time frame. Oh, absolutely. And I, I mean, it, the possibility that we break things in such a way that we have a 1930s kind of scenario is very real. So what does that mean in your view for stocks and real estate? Well, Real estate is at least 50% overvalued in terms of, I mean, if you look at where we were in, in 2019, just before the pandemic, uh, we had very low interest rates and we had prices that were, in many cases, uh, close to half of what they are today. Okay, now you have interest rates that are double what they were back in 2019 and prices that are twice. So that's, I mean, good Lord, that's, that's well more than a 50% uh, whack in terms of what's actually affordable to give a payment. Um, in terms of stocks, the same sort of leverage games, uh, as I've often commented, uh, if you have a generally declining rate environment, I can take borrowing money, assuming that the debt market will let me do it, and I can run a cash furnace, literally burn $100 bills in the backyard of the, of the company and show good earnings. But I haven't produced anything. Uh, that all goes away when you actually have to make something. So the, the question is not what is the price earnings multiple on a forward basis. The question is what are the earnings? Are, are there any earnings? <laughs> okay. uh, you know, if, if the E number is negative, then, well, <laughs> what's that worth, right? So, I mean, we, we have this idea that stocks are, are somehow going to be resilient through this. I think that's absolute lunacy. I mean, the, one, the one thing that you can say on the other side, on the other counterbalance, is that there's survivor bias in the index. Okay, so the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, for example, um, the companies that fail and get dropped from the index obviously don't count, right? So there's a survivor bias that's built into the way indexes are computed. But I, I would be stunned if over the next couple of years we don't trade through 1576 on the S&P again, which is, I mean, that's a 50% cut. Wow. So... Carl, assuming you start to see this this uh, this collapse in housing prices and and a further collapse in in stock prices, it seems that the Fed's going to go back and uh, you know go to the only page in the playbook really that they've used, and that is more currency creation. Uh, can you see this maybe turning into a, a hyperinflationary type outcome? No, because they know they can't do it. They're they're out of bullets in that regard. Because if they do that, then they then they stoke more inflation. Okay. Problem with hyperinflation is that hyperinflation reliably destroys governments. And that means them. And they know that. Deflation gets a lot of people very angry and leads to a lot of upheaval, but it doesn't typically take governments down. Hyperinflation does in almost every case. In fact, Mugabe is probably the only example that hasn't happened. 
Well, my guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, Carl, always get terrific feedback when you're, when you're on the program. I appreciate you joining us today, and uh, love to have you back uh, early next year for an update. Thank you much. Anytime. We'll return after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thanks again to Mr. Carl Denninger for joining me on today's program. As I mentioned in the first segment, it is December. I now have a December special report available for you. It is titled IRA 401k and other retirement plan strategies for 2023. And the timing of this report, I think, uh, is especially good given that now that most of the proverbial dust after the midterm elections have settled, um, it seems now that the Republicans will control the House. Uh, the Senate likely won't change much. Bottom line, in my view, is that will likely mean gridlock for a few years, at least as far as taxes are concerned. Now, purely as far as taxes are concerned, I would view gridlock as being a good thing. It probably means that income tax rates won't change much between now and calendar year 2026 when tax rates will change back to the rates that were in effect in 2017, which is when the Trump tax package was made law. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with what happened when the Trump tax package was passed, individual tax rates were reduced for eight years the last year of the lower individual tax rates will be in 2025, and then in 2026, rates will revert back to the higher rates. Business and corporate tax cuts were made permanent at the time the Trump tax package was passed. So bottom line is, given what's going on now in Washington with, with likely gridlock as far as taxes are concerned, but that's my best guess, that means we have lower income tax rates in 2023, 2024, and 2025. And that leaves in place an IRA and 401k tax planning strategy that could benefit many listeners to the program. Now, if you have money in an IRA or a 401k, the question is not, are you going to pay taxes on the money you take out of that account? The question is, when are you going to choose to do so? As many listeners are aware, once you reach age 72, required minimum distributions begin from any 401k or IRA, provided it's a traditional IRA or traditional 401k, and those distributions uh, have to be made based on a formula that takes your total year-end account balance and divides by a life expectancy factor. So the older you get, the fewer years you have left on this planet, according to the IRS table, the smaller the divisor and the greater the distribution that you have to take from your account on a percentage basis. So what this means, and this really is news often to many people, is that 
as you get older, you'll have to take more money out of your IRA or 401k because you're required to take out a larger percentage of your account. So if you were to just map or forecast the growth of your 401k or IRA using a 4% growth rate, your required minimum distributions probably don't peak and start to get smaller until sometime in your early 90s. You probably have 20 years of increasing distributions. Now, these increasing distributions from your IRA or 401k not only are taxable, but presumably you'll also be collecting Social Security as these required minimum distributions are made. And the amount of your Social Security subject to tax is dependent upon all your other income. And all your other income includes IRA distributions and 401k distributions if they are from a traditional IRA or a traditional 401k. Distributions from a Roth are not included in this formula to determine how much of your Social Security is taxable. So if you have money in a traditional 401k, have money in a traditional IRA, you should be looking over the next few years at whether or not it might make sense for you to do Roth conversions, provided you might be able to pay tax at a lower rate now versus a higher rate later, and perhaps even having those distributions negatively affect or adversely affect the level of your Social Security that's subject to tax. Now, if you have money in an IRA doing a conversion to a Roth, is easy. Basically, it means just signing a form saying you're going to convert a certain amount of your IRA to a Roth. You pay tax on the amount of the conversion, but provided you now follow the rules relating to Roth IRA conversions, all the growth on that account and all future distributions from that account will be tax-free. And keep in mind, when you take distributions from a Roth IRA, they will not adversely affect the amount of your Social Security subject to tax. Now, if you're in a 401k, some 401ks have a Roth feature. If they do have a Roth feature, you may be able to do a conversion from a traditional IRA to a Roth 401k. There may, however, be some limitations on paying tax from that conversion. So if you're listening to this today and you're 59 and a half years of age or older and you have money in a 401k, there is a strategy that may allow you to take money out of your 401k while you're still working and contributing to it, roll it to an IRA on a completely tax-free basis, and then take a look at affecting Roth conversions at a lower tax rate. If you'd like to learn more about that, I would encourage you to go to requestyourreport.com and request the December report. And again, the December report is titled IRA 401k and other retirement plan strategies for 2023. When you request the report, I'll also send you a copy of the best-selling revenue sourcing book uh, that will give you a retirement planning strategy for the post-pandemic economy. Now, there are other reasons that you may want to, once you reach age 59 and a half, roll money from a 401k to an IRA. Often 401k plans have limited investment options. Perhaps your 401k plan will be adversely affected by the new regulations that were just issued Thanksgiving week, and these are outlined in that report. 
If you have an IRA, if you have a 401k, again, you will be paying taxes on the distribution from that account at some point in the future. The question is, when is the best time for you to do that? That's what the December special report discusses. All you need to do to get your copy as well as a copy of the revenue sourcing book is visit the website, requestyourreport.com, and we'll mail you a big box of information and resources absolutely free of charge and with no further obligation. Again, requestyourreport.com is where you go to uh, give us your address. Let us know where you'd like us to mail all that information. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. And if you'd like to go back and check out additional resources, go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You'll find the podcast version of the radio program posted there, as well as all my weekly headline roundup newscasts. So again, that is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. I'll be back again next week. Have a great week. 